This morning, uh, we are going to continue in a little bit of the thoughts that we have been having in connection to the Old Testament. You may recall that we have been embracing big names and big moments in the Old Testament, and today I want to preach a message that I've titled the MVP of the Old Testament. Now, we've talked so far about Moses and Samson and David and Elijah and Elisha and Jacob and Joseph. But this morning, listen clearly, we're going to talk about prayer. Because the MVP of the Old Testament does not stand for the most valuable player or the most valuable person, but it stands for the most valuable prayer in the entire Old Testament. And so with that being a clarifying thought for us to get us centered, I want to ask you this question, what is the quality, what is the depth of your personal prayer life? And then to be a little more specific, can you remember the very first prayer that you ever prayed in your entire life? I tried to think about that this week, and my kids will tell you that their dad cannot even remember a year ago, much less my very first prayer. Um, I'm struggling with memory. How about you? Um, but, but, but there is somebody who did remember their very first prayer, and I want to read what he wrote today. Um, it is so well done. He said, I must have been only about five years old. And I learned something in Sunday school along the lines of this, ask and you shall receive. The Sunday school teacher actually said, I think all you have to do is ask God for something. And if you ask God to do it and you believe it, it will happen. And at five years old, I thought, wow, this is a pretty good deal. Because as a kid, I love to watch TV. And I've always been fascinated with flight, so there was this TV show when I was a little kid called Whirly Bird. It was an old black and white show about a helicopter, the kind with a circular glass cockpit. In fact, any time a helicopter flew over, I would run into my backyard and say, Whirly Bird, Whirly Bird, come land and take me for a ride. Well, I learned in Sunday school that all you had to do was ask God for something and he would give it. So one night I got on my knees beside my bed, folded my hands, and said, Dear God, I want to see if this thing really works. Tomorrow morning I want there to be a helicopter in my backyard, my very own helicopter. And I went on and described it to God. I want one of those, right, with a little glass bubble, the long tail with the big blade on the top. I want one of those tomorrow morning right in my backyard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I got in bed, and I hardly slept that night at all. It was almost like the night before Christmas. I literally had faith that in the morning I would have my own personal helicopter in the backyard, and I went out the next morning fully expecting to see a helicopter there, and would you believe one of those guys made an emergency landing in the night in my backyard? No, not really. I'm just kidding. I got out there, and there was nothing. It did a lot of damage to my prayer life at that time in my life. And maybe like some of you, I said, this doesn't work. Of course, I came to realize, and I'm still learning, that prayer is not trying to get God to give me everything that I want. Now, that's a good story, isn't it? But it sets the stage for us today to say this, that prayer isn't trying to bend God's will to my will, 
But prayer is a relationship in which we bend our will to meet God's will, and we don't spend as much time asking God for things as we do confessing our sins and praising God for who He is and what He does. Friends, this morning is a lesson on prayer. And we're going to see one of the greatest examples of how to pray in the entire Bible. We're going to be studying Ezra this morning. And I want you to go ahead and take your Bibles and begin turning there because we're going to talk about prayer today in three sections. If you don't know where Ezra is, it's right after First and Second Chronicles, all right? Maybe that helps us a little bit. And, and the first area of prayer that I want to focus on, don't, don't miss this while you're opening your Bible, is the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin. You see, sometimes it's conviction of sin that drives somebody like you and somebody like me to pray. And the text surround, the context surrounding our scripture today is when the Jews had returned to Jerusalem after their exile in Babylon. We've been studying on Wednesday nights how to thrive in Babylon. Babylon, one of the most wicked, evil societies that history has ever known. The world kind of mimics that today. And now in the biblical times, they were coming back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. Everything was going okay. They were finally back in the land. And that's where we pick up our text today, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and stand today as we honor the reading of God's word. We have a lot of scripture to read today, but we'll stand for this one as we get started. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's figure out what's going on. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, Ezra said, and they said this. The people of Israel, including the priest and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, Ezra said, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. And I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord, my God, and prayed. Now, We're going to save the prayer for just a moment. Today, as as we read this scripture, as we study this story, I am really excited about how God's going to work in our lives. Let's be listening and let's be ready to obey. Let's be seated. Very interesting passage of scripture, right? And it reveals to us that sometimes when things are going really well, And seemingly all the circumstances around you are finally being worked out that that's the time the devil slips in and gets you to sin in different ways. And in this case, in Ezra's life, in Ezra's story, God's people, we just read it, they had intermarried with some of those other cultures. In other words, they had begun to mix their lives 
to mix their thoughts, to mix their goals, to mix their dreams. They mixed it all up with these other people from this pagan context. So some of the people came to Ezra and they said, Ezra, we're in trouble. We've disobeyed God. We have to do something about it. And with that, look at me, we're going to get really serious really fast this morning. You see, this Bible that we read in the Old Testament, it's not just some ancient document. This isn't just some story to remember. No, this is God's Word, I believe, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to joints and marrow to the soul of a person. And I think it has something to say to us right now. Do you think today that too many Christians have married our culture? Do you think that we today, as the people of God, are intermixing with a non-Christian world? And then let me ask you some more bold questions. Are you outraged about it? And are you appalled by it? Are you so upset that the church has become so worldly that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has done the same thing that the people of Israel did? And I think I know the answer that you do believe this is true. That we have intermarried with our culture to the extent that sometimes you can't even tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Sometimes people today have to tell you that they're a Christian because you can't see it in their lives. And this passage, you see, when we apply it like that, it does apply to us. We become so much like the world that, in essence, we've intermarried with them. And the New Testament has something to say about this, too. You see, the New Testament teaches that a Christian man should never marry a non-Christian woman, and a Christian woman should never marry a non-Christian man. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we've misapplied this and we've misinterpreted this. Folks, it says nothing about prohibiting marriage between people of different races. The Bible's never been against that. The Bible doesn't have anything to say to that specifically, but it has everything to say about mixing our lives deeply with a non-Christian culture. It reminds me of a man who said he had sinned against God because he had got into a business deal with a non-Christian. And here's what he said. I was bound contractually to a non-Christian. I was yoked together unequally with an unbeliever, and I got in all kinds of trouble Because of it, the Bible does teach that as Christians, we're to separate ourselves from a godless culture around us. We are to be in the world, but not to be of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world or anything in the world, it says. The lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but it comes from the world. Let me illustrate like this. It's the best one I ever heard as I grew up and thought about it. We as Christians are like a boat on the water, right? You're in the boat, and the world is the water. You put the boat in the water, and that's okay. But if you put the water in the boat, well, you're soon sunk. It doesn't work, right? So, folks, we have to see the church 
When we see the church and Christians yoked together with this godless culture, like Ezra and his people were doing, it ought to cause us, and the Bible says this, it ought to cause us to be appalled. It ought to cause us to be outraged. Ezra and his people, they got upset, and guess what it led them to do? It led them to pray. The conviction of sin ought to drive us to pray, and it should be a part of our prayer every single day. The first section, the conviction of sin. Do we understand where we're going today? Second, the conviction of sin, now the confession of sin. Because this is what happens in the very next verse that I kind of screech to a halt on, is the beautiful prayer. Let's pick it up in verse 5 again, and then let's begin to read in verse 6. Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, as our pickup. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from myself a basement. And with my tunic and cloak torn, I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. So you see the posture. Here's the prayer. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Have you ever started a prayer like that? That gets my attention. Have you ever assumed that posture? Where is the shame today for sin? And did you know, and I think it's true for me and you, did you know that very few Christians even blush anymore? And we don't blush anymore because we've got used to the scenes. We've got accustomed to the language. We've gotten used to the content that's around us all the time. And you see, Ezra's not the one at fault. He was broken on behalf of what was happening around him to his people. Let's keep reading the prayer. Pick it up now in verse 7. From the days of our forefathers until now, he said, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the world and ca- to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Folks, we could we could stop right there as, as we pray for our nation, couldn't we? As we pray for our church, as we pray for our family. Lord, you've blessed us. You've delivered us. You've met all of our needs. You've given us a great place to live. You've given us a great church. You've given us a nation where we can worship without persecution. We could pray the same exact thing. And now go back into the prayer and let's pick it up in verse 10. But now, O oh our God, Ezra prays. What can we say after this? For we have disregarded the the commands that you gave your servants, the prophets, when you said this. The land you're entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. 
by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Folks, this is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2. And I'm going to give it to you now. Here's what it reads. When you go into the promised land, there are godless people there. Don't marry them. Don't even be friends with them. It's very akin, right, to James chapter 4, verse 4 in the New Testament that says, anyone chooses, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then we continue with the prayer in verse number 13. What has happened to us, Ezra prays, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Folks, I don't know if you've ever heard this prayer. And my hunch is many of us have not come across it the way we're experiencing it today. But I think it's one of the greatest prayers of confession in the entire Bible. It's a powerful prayer. Because Ezra doesn't make any excuses. He's not trying to give any reasons why they acted this way. He basically says, God, we're guilty and you punished us and we even deserve more punishment than you have ever even given us. And here's the question as it applies to us. Are we ashamed of our national sins? As far as we know, Ezra didn't intermarry a foreign person. He was okay, right? But he was burdened and broken and outraged and appalled, and then he was ashamed because of what his people had done. Now, let's put it in context. I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life this week. I walked into our capital as a part of this group called State Funeral for World War II Veterans. I was overwhelmingly honored to be able to speak at the memorial, the World War II memorial, on behalf of the greatest generation. I loved seeing the Smithsonian Museums and the grandeur of our, of our government buildings. But I could not help but see other things. You see, what we were doing there was good and right, but I couldn't help but see the protesters. I couldn't help but see the abortion rights people gathered at the barriers. I couldn't help but seeing the gay pride flag hanging next to the American flag. And by the way, why did we allow someone else to steal God's sign that he gave to the world to promise us he'd never destroy our world by flood again? That's a biblical sign. It's not a gay sign. It's ours. And I couldn't help but not see those things hanging side by side. And I'll tell you this. It's not that I just became ashamed there, but I became very ashamed as I saw it with my own eyes. And I thought about this passage. 
Are we, as God's people, confessing the sins of America? Have we been so ashamed that we've gotten before God and said, God, I'm ashamed that we're killing unborn babies. And praise God what our senior, what our Supreme Court has done, but now you see all of the reaction to it. Have we said, God, I'm ashamed that we're allowing homosexuals to have the same kind of living arrangements as a husband and a wife? Have we said, God, I'm ashamed that we're living in a culture like that? God, I'm ashamed there's, there's so much illegal drug use. God, please forgive us. Have we done that? Have we been like Ezra? Have we prayed these prayers, folks, the confession of sin, until every Christian American gets burdened and ashamed for the sins of America, we're not going to see national revival. You see, these are the first two steps in this prayer lesson today, the conviction of sin, the confession of sin. And now let me give us a, a third step, the correction from sin. You see, the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, that's the start. And then you confess your sin, but that's not the end. Because the confession of sin should always lead to the correction of sin. Ezra and his people, we're about to see this, they did something about it. They repented right there in public. Go back to the text with me. We're going to finish out in Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. In accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God, let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. Do you see what I see? They were convicted. They confessed their own sins, and then they were willing to correct their sins. They were willing to repent right then and right there. Here's how it applies to us today. I'm going to make it personal. Are you willing to repent and to call our nation to repentance? You see, the church has no place, no right, no standing to call America to repentance. If Christians are not individually responsible to personally repent of our own sins and shortcomings. So how are you praying? Are you willing to confess your sins? Are you willing to confess the sins of America? And are you willing to be outraged by them? As the scripture clearly says. I started this message with a personal story of prayer that wasn't answered. But I want to finish with a story of an answered prayer, of a prayer that that was answered. Here's the story. Stories from Houston. There was a strange man who came to church one week during the single activities. They had a singles group and they were having singles activities. And he was sitting in the very back of the room with his forehead on the pew. 
And some of the other singles, they recognized the guy in the back as a newcomer, and there was a lady named Ellen who was one of the leaders. And she thought it was her place to go introduce herself. After all, when you're in church, right, and somebody new comes up, you ought to make them feel welcome. That's what you're supposed to do. So she walked back, and she tapped him on the arm, and he looked up, and she said, Hi, my name is Ellen. Well, his eyes got as big as silver dollars. And without saying a word, he bolted out the back door of the room and the church. She didn't know what to think at all. She was actually embarrassed. She thought she had done something wrong with my breath bad. Whatever it was, she didn't know what to do. But the next week, there the same guy was again in the singles meeting. His name was Bob Wright. And he walked up and he found a lady and he said, Listen, you have to forgive me. I know you thought I was crazy last week, but you won't even begin to believe what happened. You see, a few months ago, my wife, Ellen, died. And I was so lonely when I came to this singles group last week uh, with my head back there balanced on the top of the pew. I was literally praying. You probably didn't hear me, but I said, God, please give me another Ellen. And I looked up and there you were and you said what? Hi, my name is Ellen. He said, it scared me to death. Well, believe it or not, Bob and the new Ellen married, and they've been happily married now for 14 years in Houston, Texas. God answers prayer. (laughs) Now, it's a lighthearted story to finish up a pretty heavy sermon, isn't it? The most valuable prayer in the Old Testament, a prayer of conviction, a prayer of confession, a prayer of correction. And here's my prayer today. My prayer is that it inspires us to purity for our nation and purity in our own walk 